This is the MLW Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Welcome to another episode of Overbooked. My name is Mike Freeland. Hopefully, Life is treating you well, and uh, this uh, recording is finding you in a good place. Whether you're listening to it on your lunch break, or you're listening to it on the drive to work, or from work, or wherever, maybe the gym. I, I need to get back to the gym. It's something that I I used to do a lot, and I don't do it as much anymore. Um, but yeah, however you're listening to it, I hope life is treating you well, and hope you're enjoying it. I love doing these audiobooks, uh, these audio readings, so... Hopefully, if you're enjoying this book right now, uh, we're going to be doing another book. I believe we're going to be doing uh, a John Moxley uh, book next. John is from Cincinnati. I am from Cincinnati, as many of you know. So I think would make that book really interesting would be the fact that I'll be able to even shed some more light and give you a little bit more insight onto some of the things that John has maybe experienced, places he's gone, maybe people he has talked to. So very, very cool. But Staying on task right now, uh, we are reading the Sabu book, and we are in Chapter 7. If you remember back in Chapter 6, really interesting chapter, which was Sabu's tryout in the WWF, how they wanted to give him the Sultan gimmick, they wanted to pay him $250,000 a year. However, the catch was they wanted to use the Iron Sheik as his uncle. Sabu did not like that idea. Um, the whole thing was actually um, posed to Sabu through J.J. Dillon, who actually had been trained by the Sheik. Uh, Vince really loved Sabu from, from his first match, but uh, Sabu decided that it just wasn't for him, and he decided to stick with Paul Heyman and Tommy Dreamer and continue building ECW. So that was a quick, quick recap of what happened in Chapter 6. So let's go ahead and let's jump right in to Chapter 7. It was 1993. Nine years had passed since I first got in the ring. My uncle mentored me, for half of that. But for the second half, I was doing more on my own, you know, here and there. In America, times were changing as far as pro wrestling was concerned. The WWF's golden era was coming to an end. People were getting sick of the Hulkster, and actually, they started booing him. The little Hulkamaniacs were growing up, but the product wasn't growing up with them. I think it was around this time that the wrestling fan began to crave more of the reality-style wrestling. They were mature wrestling fans. They wanted something different, something that was more adult-oriented and not so kid and cartoonish. They were growing up, but the product wasn't, and they wanted something that was more relatable. When I wasn't in Japan, I was working various promotions all over the place. I was getting pretty polished. During this time, I came to be known as somewhat of a journeyman. This was kind of a strange perception, because I was that crazy independent guy on the road. Promoters and fans started to build a reputation around me as this gypsy kind of guy who was m mystical and all of this. However, in reality, I was just taking whatever gig I could make just to make a living. Now, throughout my travels, I had made a lot of contacts. One day, I got a call from Paul Heyman for a project he was working on called 
World Wrestling Network, WWN. He called me up and talked to me about a, a big fusion of independence. It all sounded really good, just like another one of a dream of his, maybe a pipe dream. But I wasn't sure, but it never really panned out. However, if Paul had anything, he had charisma. He could make somebody believe in just about anything. Around that time, another guy I knew was Dennis Carluzzo. He gave me a call. Dennis was a wrestling promoter from the NWA New Jersey and a former president and board member of the National Wrestling Alliance. He talked a little about another high-promising promotion, but mostly just because it was a good payday in a time when good paydays were becoming rare. Dennis told me, You want to make some real good money? Hook up with some guy named Todd Gordon in Philadelphia. I hear they're paying really well over there. Does he have a TV promotion or something coming up, I asked? No, he's just a sucker. If he thinks you're a name, he'll pay you like 500 bucks, he said. I like $500, I said. Sounds good to me. At this point, I was really becoming a journeyman, and I was still eating tuna from a can and doing whatever I could do just to simply survive. I was traveling all over the place, and $500 sounded like a great, great lead. That much money was almost four times what promoters were paying guys who weren't headlining main events. It's about time, Mark Money. I could use some of that right about now. Dennis gave me his phone number. I'll give him a call. Hey, Todd, this is Sabu. Dennis gave me your phone number. Oh, oh yes, yes, the, the, the Japan guy. Yes, can I come in? Sure. Wait, what do you mean? I hesitated. I want that tasty $500 payday Dennis put me over. Is there any chance I could still get that? I shit my pants. I was so scared. Um, well, well, what about 300? I didn't want to come off too greedy. Uh, 300? Uh, yeah, we can do 300. Is that okay? I said, well, we can do that. Wow. I, I should have continued to negotiate. I might have been able to get more. After that, I was off to Philadelphia. The first day I went to work in for Todd in Philadelphia, I found out that I wasn't only the new kid on the block at the same time. Eddie Gilbert was the booker there. The booker is the man who comes up with the finishes and puts the matches together. Well, he started to have a falling out with Todd, and he had just gotten fired from being the lead booker. So the very same day... I walked into ECW for the first time. A man by the name of Paul Heyman was walking in beside me. This is Sabu, everyone, Todd said to the boys in the dressing room. He'll be wrestling for us now. And this, everyone, is Paul. He will be replacing Eddie on the booking team. Now, it was a really weird situation seeing Paul there as this new guy brought in. Along with me, made absolutely no sense. He was just telling me how this new network thing was about to take off, and all of a sudden now he's looking for a job, and he's going to be working here? Quite often in the wrestling business, you hear about these big plans that never come to fruition. A promoter will call you and tell you about a massive tour in the UK that they're going to be booking, and they want you to be on it. But then they never call you again. A booker will call you and tell you that they're all set to bring you in and pay you all this money, and then you never hear from them again. Since there's so much ego out there, I think they 
aren't typically lying to a wrestler when they see this kind of stuff. I, I think things just generally just don't work out. Nine out of ten times, it sounds great, but there really is no payoff. This is what sounded so convincing. They actually believed what they were saying in ECW. Todd actually had a belief in it. However, when reality sets in, and they find out they can't pull off whatever they were trying to do, well, just doesn't work, especially when you're working on a shoestring budget. And then everything just falls out of place, and everyone has these delusions of grandeur. It's a fucking pipe dream. That's pro wrestling. It was just weird to see the same guy organizing this hottest new thing that was supposed to be happening, but then all of a sudden he's got all this time to be the booker for Todd Gordon? I mean, literally, just a few days before I showed up in Philly, I was on the phone with Paulie, who was telling me all these wonderful things about the WWN. He explained that the television deal he was setting up, he talked about all the talent he was bringing in, everything sounded great. But then all of a sudden, there he was, going to be taking a job as a booker for this company. The Wrestling Network thing sounded awesome, but then I realized it was just like all the other fantasies I had heard before in wrestling. Clearly wasn't going to pan out. You know, it's weird because coming from Paul, it really felt like it actually could have been legit. It didn't seem like he was feeding me a bunch of crap at the time, that he wasn't going to be pulling off things here and there. He really had a strange ability to get things done, and he had an ability to make you buy into whatever he was saying. Paul was almost like a cult leader. I believed every one of those WWN lines he had fed me. Gosh, he fed me so much of that stuff. He was such a good liar. Don't let interviews kill you, kid. Wow. Paul takes credit for funding me. He takes credit for finding me. It was not Paul Heyman that brought me to ECW. Dennis Corluzo led me to the right place, to Todd Gordon, and it would just happen to be the right time. One of my things, mostly from the start with my character, my thou shall not speak beliefs. For many notable wrestlers, they all spoke early in their career, and they adopted all different types of styles. But I adopted mine from my uncle, and that was the refusal to speak. Inheriting this part of the gimmick originally stemmed from my uncle's choice to never speak English in public to protect kayfabe. He wanted people to believe that he really was this overseas guy who could not speak a lick of the language, and it made him even more hysterical. Never speaking, for me, had multiple benefits. For one, early on in my career, I was being billed as hailing from Saudi Arabia or some Bombay, India. I never was speaking. Nobody knew where I was in real life. I was a second-generation Lebanese-American from Detroit. I wanted the same mystique as my uncle had. Another reason I decided to be silent stems from horror movies. When you look at a good movie like Friday the 13th, Jason never talked. The hockey mask wearing butcher man never said a word. He just stabbed the shit out of people. Not hearing him speak was something mystical, something even more intimidating. It was scary and dangerous. There was just no reasoning with a silent psycho killer. Now, I can't lie, another reason I didn't talk was simply wasn't one of my strong suits. You see, I was very shy, honestly, and I never felt comfortable on a microphone. In ECW, however, there was so much shit to deal with. However, a lot of the guys were not all that talented to start off. 
Paul would give them a gimmick and a character, oftentimes I would have to talk through a match for them over the rabid voices of the fans to help them get through it. Fans probably could clearly hear what I was saying in the ring, especially when it came to TV. Soon, I am sure that it became fairly common knowledge that I wasn't really a foreigner from the Middle East. People knew that I was an American citizen from birth. Eventually, this was probably why announcers would joke about my expenses billing me from Bombay, Michigan. You might know ECW was a land of hardcore, or maybe the most violent company that ever existed in pro wrestling. However, this is exactly how it was before I got there. Before guys like me, it was actually pretty tame. It wasn't even called extreme at the beginning. ECW initially started out under the name Tri-State Wrestling Association. At first, it was owned by a guy named Joel Goodhart. And from what I understand, Joel couldn't cut it and eventually sold the company to his friend Todd, who basically had no experience before that when it came to pro wrestling. And he wanted to get out of the business. Todd didn't know much, but at least he knew that he needed to change things up. Tri-State wasn't drawing flies, and it needed a major facelift. So one of the first things that Todd did was rename the company Eastern Championship Wrestling. This early vision of ECW debuted at a sports bar in Philadelphia. With the very first match under the new name, it was Jimmy Gennetti versus Stevie Richards. According to what I heard from Stevie Richards say in the past, I guess it was pretty bad. He said that on his own opinion, and he sucked that up in the match. He said it wasn't really that good. For the rest of the matches on that first show, they say that those matches were just as bad as well. The wrestlers on it all sucked, and overall it was a typical shitty indie show. Eventually, Todd knew that he had to get better talent. Instead of cutting back with the lowest ticket sales, he opened up the purse strings a little, little bit better to bring in some more quality, quality talent for the shows. He started having more veterans come in to help out. Some of the early Eastern Championship Wrestling shows featured guys like the Magnificent Morocco, Road Warrior Hawk, Jim Nyhart, the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. This eventually led up to Superfly Jimmy Snuka, who was actually close enough to drive to these shows to become part of an ECW show. And actually, he became the first ECW champion. He had hoped that this would give him a new brand credibility with his fans. At around this point, Todd also brought in Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert to start being the booker for his shows. However, things didn't quite pan out as he had hoped, and it still sucked. From one of the boys in the locker room said Eddie was on some serious drugs and that his creative abilities were being compromised. They say he was so focused on getting a fix, Eddie couldn't focus on fixing ECW. Around this time, Todd had a major falling out with, Get with Gilbert and then fired him on the spot. Hearing news that a guy by the name of Paul Heyman had just been fired from WCW brought him in to take Eddie's spot. At the same time that he was brought in, guess what? As I said, so was I. I wasn't the only name recognition they were looking for internationally that joined ECW. The National Wrestling Alliance had a rich history only years before this, but in the era, the NWA was basically dying, if not already dead. After Jim Crockett sold WCW to Ted Turner and WWE took over the world, the NWA was just yet another indie company. Despite the fact that they still held 
onto the idea of being a governing body over the territory days. They had no television behind it, so basically it was a money grab. Some could argue it takes a crook to spot a crook. ECW kicked around with the same NWA banner for a short time before Paul Heyman recognized that the NWA was only taking money out of the promotion. There was no benefit of working under the banner of NWA, so Paul decided that he broke away from them. So rather than just cancel their subpar subscription to using the name, they decided to work an end to their working relationship in a storyline, one that the NWA never saw coming. So Paul and Todd Gordon lobbied to have the NWA let ECW's top guy, Shane Douglas, win the NWA title and run with it in ECW. They all agreed. The NWA scheduled Shane to win the NWA world title belt in a tournament taking place on an ECW show. After he actually won, he made his long speech recognizing everyone who had held the title before him, and then Shane told all of the audience to kiss his ass before he held the belt of ECW up, and it began the new era. You know, that night all the fans in the arena chanted ECW, ECW for the first time ever. Immediately after denouncing the NWA affiliation, Todd and Paul broke away from the NWA behind the scenes. For real. Dennis Corluzzo thought it was all a work at first, but after a few days, he realized it wasn't. The ECW office soon made the announcement that Eastern Championship Wrestling would once again be renamed Extreme Championship Wrestling. All the Dirt magazines loved it. They picked up the story everywhere. It worked. The spotlight now was squarely on ECW. After dissing the NWA, we knew we needed to keep the ball rolling. ECW started to click, but it wasn't because of an increase in wrestling quality or some magical direction that Paul had given us. Our success started to come when we actually figured out how to hide the fact that a lot of our guys were the drizzling shits. You know, it's ironic that ticket sales started to increase because the fans really wanted to see good wrestling, and they really had some very bad wrestlers on the card, though. I loved him, but some of the guys in our locker room, the Sandman, almost had no wrestling ability. To cover up his weakness, rather than have a weak-looking worker get into the ring and fake looking like he could throw a punch, we just told him to get in the ring and just throw and hit shit at us for real. One of our fixes was to have the guys go out there and practically kill each other. Yeah, just go out there. We were trying to mask the fact that they had no idea, nor did they have any wrestling training whatsoever. What this did was it created our version of Strong Style. Now, Strong Style in Japan was when wrestlers actually did forcefully hit one another. Not like the stuff you see in WWE. The reason the fans started tuning in was because these other guys were actually hitting each other for real, because the fans didn't think it was a work. It was a perfect thing to offer something new. The same wrestling fans who were getting bored with the big powerhouse style of wrestlers, the same fans who were booing Hulk Hogan, they were booing those same top guys. But we were winning now. We weren't that same cartoony stuff that was being produced in the WWF. Fans were tuning into our channel. And they were booing guys too, but on our channel, it wasn't as bad. The number two promotion, WCW, was funded by Ted Turner, who actually had a vendetta against Vince McMahon. Therefore, all Ted was doing at the time was trying to steal top WWF talent and rip off 
Vince's company and making the WWF too. The moment I signed a contract with ECW, the fans loved me instantly, despite the fact that I was supposed to be a bad guy. The reason for this was simple. I wasn't just body slamming guys. I wasn't just doing leg drops and holding my hand to my ear. That old tired shtick. I was giving them something new, something they didn't see before, especially on American television. They loved my gritty, violent, more aerial type of assault. It was risky. And then we started with the suicidal, homicidal, offensive tactics. According to my first television storyline with ECW, I was too out of control even to wander around the ring alone. I had to have a handler. I need a big babysitter that could control me. So in my early days with the company, they put me with this guy called 911 who looked like the love child of the big boss man and the undertaker. My character at that time was supposed to be clinically insane. It was some serious silence of the lamb style shit we were trying to pull off. Polly figured that it would help explain my suicidal arsenal and all my crazy moves. In my first few matches of the company, I was uncontrollable. I was a madman who was strapped to a gurney. The 911 would wheel me out to the ring from a men mental hospital. The fans ate this up. I was chained down, flailing from my head all the way down to my feet, wearing a Hannibal Lecter-style mask. As the Madman Sabu character, I would be released from my bonds only for a few seconds before it was actually time to wrestle in my match. Then I would attack my opponent like a rabid dog. While this probably looked great to the people in the attendance, it was actually tough for me to pull off physically. The gimmick intro always killed me before anything else happened in the ring. While trying desperately to free myself by shaking violently and playing this whole character role, that we had to play, it was a ton of energy I had to expend. I was so tired from it already. Before my introduction was over, I had already gotten blown up. I was exhausted before even locking up. My use of tables, chairs, and anything else was around. It was totally foreign to American audiences, so when I would do these kinds of things, they ate it up. Again, I just didn't swing a chair. I made a chair like a flying leg drop with a chair underneath it, for example. I would use the force of my body with the chair under my leg to drive into my opponent's body as a weapon. On the off chance that a fan was familiar with the Japanese style of hardcore wrestling, they would have seen an FMW Onita videotape. I was still doing something a lot different than even what they were doing. I wasn't just hitting people with chairs. During my first few months of my time in ECW, the name Sabu quickly became synonymous with broken tables. The whole idea was part of my gimmick. If you were to see one of my matches, you knew a table was most likely going to play into it at some point. My number one life goal. Make a conscious effort to destroy at least one table every match. In the rare event that a table wasn't broken during a match, I knew I needed to break a table with my own body before the next guys were about to come out. If that didn't work, I'd grab a camera guy and then do it during a backstage interview. Pretty much everyone loved it, and almost nobody complained. There was only one guy who let it be known that he didn't like my constant use of tables early on. I thought, hmm, Taz was a competitive motherfucker. It seemed like he just seemed to have felt that way towards me. I think he felt that personally I used table spots to steal his spotlight. We were totally cool at that point. I hated teaming with him at the beginning of ECW. 
and I'll get into more of that soon. At this time, Tails was the only guy on the regular roster that didn't like table spots and was very vocal about it. However, there was a number of old-timers who actually came up to me from time to time to say that I was destroying the business due to my in-ring style and my tables. At first, I was only like breaking tables. Everyone knew that that was my deal. That was my whole gimmick. Afterward, though, things changed. The guys I worked with saw the reaction I was getting from the crowd when I broke a table. The pop was enormous. Rarely would fans ever see that kind of destruction on any other type of wrestling television product. And if a table was broken, it was never the way that I was doing it because the response my gimmick received. It wasn't long before others in the back started to change their mind about table spots, and they decided to start using tables in their matches. The first time I heard that other wrestlers in ECW were going to use tables was while I was away on an FMW tour. When I came back, I started hearing rumblings that on some of the shows course that obviously I wasn't on, someone in the locker room decided to do a table spot to give the crowd what they wanted. Hey man, one of the Dudleys said that that they're going to do these table spots. Is that true? They said they were doing it while you were gone. In public, anyone was breaking tables left and right too. It was almost gimmick infringement. Now, I know this person wasn't probably saying this to get my goat, but not for being anything more than that. I went on and I went to ask Johnny Grunge if he was breaking tables on shows. I wanted to know if the Dudleys were doing that as well. I needed to know what was happening while I was away. No, man, Johnny said, denying it completely. No, 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 that's just your thing. It is, but I'm hearing otherwise, I said. No, man, he said, not me. The things, if you do it, everyone's going to start doing it. And there'll be no end to it. It's not going to be special anymore, Johnny. I hear you. After that, I did not care if Public Enemy heard me anymore. For a time, there was heat between me and Rocco Rock. They were using these tables and their spots, and they were doing all these different kinds of things that were part of my gimmick. I was trying to protect my image. I went to Paul, trying to protect things, when Public Enemy started breaking more tables now that I was back. No, I promise you, they will never break another table, Paul said. They already did, I told him. Well, they won't do it anymore, I can assure you of that. I knew he was bullshitting me. The fact that I was not on a show, and I had been told by people who were on the show, the tables were being broken, and that was part of my gimmick, and the fans were happy, so they just decided to keep breaking more tables. Eventually, I just had to deal with it. I made tables a part of ECW and couldn't be mine anymore. It was sad, though. For a time, people would actually come up to me on a show backstage and ask permission to do a table spot. Guys like Dreamer. Then the Dudleys started coming around. Johnny Grunge slowly did. However, after a while, they just stopped asking me. Eventually, it got back to Paul that I was mad about watering down my trademark spots, and I think he decided to rib me and to try to pull off one of those stunts. Well... He did something. One night, Paul brought 30 tables at some auction somewhere. He had everyone on the card and their mother break tables. Raven and Dreamer broke five tables that night. Oh my God, I knew they had to have been busting my balls for some reason. There's no way Paul would have bought all of those tables just for no reason. And 30 some odd? 
I had like I didn't care, but I was madder than a son of a bitch. After that, Brian Lee and Dreamer had a match. 20 tables and a scaffold match? I knew it was going to come to this. Using that many tables was absurd, but I didn't care. I knew the uniqueness of the tables was officially gone. Originally, if there was one table spot on a show, people would freak out when they saw it. It was crazy shit in their eyes. After a dozen or so people would do it on a show, fans weren't going to pop anymore like they did after seeing it the first time. It was overkill. It diminished the response of the audience. Eventually, I just gave up. For the good of the whole, I gave up on my idea that the tables were Sabu's trademark, and I agreed to see everything just become ECW's gimmick. That as it is, seeing a table broken in ECW match regularly, no matter who it was in the ring, just didn't seem to mean as much. I won't mention names, but once the floodgates were open, some of the boys even tried to do my innovative table shit, but just did it so shitty. I'd like to believe that some people could see the difference between my side and theirs, but they were probably just happy seeing all the carnage in the ring. Eventually, breaking a table in ECW became as regular as a headlock in the WWF. Shane Douglas was an excellent hand and an excellent heel. He was perfect for ECW because he could do anything and make anyone look good. Shane was practically there from the start. He debuted on August the 24th of 1993 during ECW's formative years as a villain. He beat Don E. Allen and Herb Restro in a handicap match, clearly being a great talent that the company had needed, and one close enough that he could drive to shows easily because he lived in the area. Douglas soon rose to be one of the top stars on the roster. As stated before, after winning the ECW Heavyweight Championship, he became the face of the promotion that ushered in new extreme direction. Douglas successfully defended the title against the likes of uber-hardcore guys like the Sandman and showed that he could still hold his own. At Bloodfest Part 2, Douglas retained his title against J.T. Smith, but then, in a bigger surprise, he dropped the title to me later that night. My gimmick was super over with the fans, so much that Paul felt that he had to put the belt on me. That idea, of course, was one that I did not have a problem with. Part of my first wrestling reign was probably due to the fact that he appreciated that I had brought the tables to ECW. Paul recognized that the whole Japan influence that the promotion had. I had helped change the table spots for forever. I brought it to the promotion. I think it was his way of thanking me for the success that I helped the company achieve. Other than my uncle, Terry Funk was a huge part of my development that helped me win my first heavyweight championship. He helped me with my finishes, psychology, and little nuances that really polished me. The most significant matches during my early part in ECW career came with him. They were eventually leading me to dropping the ECW title to Terry after beating Shane Douglas, then defeating Terry in a crazy barbed wire match. We'll discuss that later. Years later, to win the title back. Terry was also in a three-way dance for the ECW Heavyweight Championship at ECW's The Night the Line Was Crossed against Shane Douglas and me. Now, three ways anyone can see this is a clusterfuck. But Terry was an excellent leader, and he was our teacher. He showed me how to get to a one-hour time limit draw and still beat the public enemy for the tag titles. 
with my partner Taz in a double tables match on the same show. It was crazy. Now, getting back to Taz. Speaking of him, originally in October of 93, Joe Chetty, brother of Chris Chetty, and Peter Serena, cousin of Chris Chetty's brother, debuted in Eastern Championship Wrestling just before his name changed. Their tag team, the Tasmaniacs, only lasted a very short time before Joe left from an injury. So much like what happened to the British Bulldogs, Peter just kept the tag name for himself. not really sure why he did this. However, it basically was a lame orange caravan gimmick. Yeah, he just kept running around. He would have this leopard print and then orange. And that's what he was. After their team broke up, I had a singles match with the Tasmaniac. For whatever reason, he felt that doing a table spot would make him look weak and he didn't want to do it. He started arguing with me how it was he was trying to do something I didn't want to do or I wouldn't do something he wanted to do or it just wasn't working out. He thought I was trying to big league him. I just didn't understand it. He was arguing about a table spot that would make him look weak, even more so the fact that the gimmick made him look like a fucking Fred Flintstone. Nobody, nobody realized it. I will say this about him. However, he worked very hard for the promotion, and he did everything right to help it succeed. He put up the ring, he helped with the tickets. All of this stuff got unnoticed by the office. But then they started seeing this. They started realizing how much of an asset Taz actually was. After our match, he would put in another team with Kevin Sullivan, and they became the ECW Tag Team Champions. During his second race, Tag Team Champions with Sullivan, the Tasmaniac even became the television champion for one night in March of 94 because of all of his hard work. However, he was still mostly viewed by the company as being a tag team wrestler who just didn't have a solid partner. For the rest of the year, the Tasmaniac worked matches, teaming up with different partners. Eventually, he ended up with a new tag team partner. They called themselves the Dangerous Alliance. Yep, that's right. The Tasmaniac went on to hold tag team title belts once more. Oh my gosh, but this time with me. I don't know if we still had heat because of the table spot stuff we continue to argue about, but he was still competitive with me, and we constantly locked horns. I didn't. Well, I didn't like having a tag team partner with him. just didn't feel right. At ECW's November to Remember on November 13th of 93 in Philadelphia, I pinned Terry Funk in a tag team match to win the ECW TV title. It was me and Road Warrior Hawk versus Terry Funk and King Kong Bundy. About six months later, Paul Heyman came up to me and told me he wanted me to drop the title to J.T. Smith. I really like J.T. as a person. But at this point in his wrestling career, he was terrible. I really didn't want to put him over because, well, he didn't look like he was something. And I didn't want to look like I was getting beat by somebody who really sucked. That would mean that I sucked even worse. Look, Paul, I said, I don't mind dropping the title at all. I just don't want to lose to a nutsack like J.T. Smith. Well, who would you like to drop the belt to, Paul said. It's not about who I would lose it to in this case. I said more about who I didn't want to drop the belt to. Okay, so who? I'll drop the belt to Taz if you want me to. 
I said, knowing he knew I wasn't a big Taz fan. Now, word got back to J.T. Smith that he would be getting the belt soon, but then he would not be getting it from me, as everything had been planned. When he found out that I would be dropping the belt to Taz, J.T. came up and confronted me in the locker room. Listen, Sabu, he said. I told him what's up. I'm disappointed in you, he said. My head started spinning. I wasn't sure how I was going to tell him that I didn't want to lose to him because he was horrible. I took a moment to think about how I was going to pick my words, but then he cut me off. Is the reason you don't want me to win the titles because you think I'm not that good or because I'm black? I shook my head. I couldn't believe what he just said. What? I said. Taz is black? Wait, he said. JT answered. So on the show in Philadelphia on March 6, 1994, I dropped the belt to Taz and then dropped the title to JT the same night. I couldn't believe it. Let's talk about someone like the Sandman. James Fullington was there from the start, and he was always a huge partier. Now, I'm not judging. I can only say this, really, because I was partying right alongside him. At least, I think I was. Because of the epic proportions of both of our partying, we came up with some exceptional stories of the wrestling business as we know, especially the Sandman, who definitely uh, had some stories, but sometimes it kind of all blurred together. Now, he started wrestling in 1989 in Philadelphia for what would eventually transition into ECW, a promotion that once again was the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance. He was managed by his then real-life wife, Peaches, and his ring name was originally Mr. Sandman. The interesting thing about this was the sand was meant for the beaches, not passing out or going to sleep. His first gimmick was totally a surfer dude wearing Oakley's a body glove wetsuit and Ocean Pacific pink headband, and he was toting around a full-size surfboard. Just like Rob and myself, Mr. Sandman had some of his early matches in Memphis around 91-92, and while the beach bomber gimmick worked there... It didn't work in Philadelphia. In April of 92, he was back in Philly for Eastern Championship Wrestling for a fan favorite. On November 16th, 92, he won his first ECW championship from an even four, four more fabulous, famous person, Don Morocco, only to lose it back to him in April of that same year. In 94, owner Todd Gordon took over and asked Sandman to drop the surfer gimmick and act more like himself. Now, the idea that James Fullington was such a larger-than-life character in real life, they didn't need to put much on for a gimmick. Around then, he dropped the mister and just became the Sandman. He worked with Tommy Cairo and other Tommies and Tommy Dreamer. Eventually, traded in his real wife, Peaches, for Kevin Sullivan's then-real-wife, Woman, who became his valet. Woman would eventually trade Kevin Sullivan in for Chris Benoit to become his wife. Uh, but that's another story altogether. Sandman eventually adopted the gimmick to be truthful and lived the gimmick in the ring, which really wasn't too much of a gimmick, I guess. And I'm, I'm trying to say it was fine. I guess he was kind of like an artist. He turned outside sources for inspiration, and he often dress wrestled drunk as hell. When asked about working with the Sandman, who was almost always classified as a wrestler who worked drunk, I have to admit, I was skeptical about getting into the ring 
with him in the early days, knowing he was shit-faced. But after a while, I got used to it, and I think it was actually better to work with drunk than sober. He wouldn't try to throw as much stupid shit in that he wanted to. He never overthought things when he was drunk. Well, being able to wrestle drunk might have been one of his strongest attributes. Well, he was able to be more cooperative, and he actually became a huge part of our show. Sandman became a huge, huge part of the ECW family to come. Early on, there was one match that really put me over. Ah, really put me on the map, I should say. It really secured my reputation as being insane and so much that I didn't even care about my own well-being. In fact, this belt is what would put Paul E. on the line to decide to call me the suicidal, homicidal, genocidal, human highlight reel. I absolutely hate that name, by the way. In a death match against then-Canadian crippler Chris Benoit at the 94 November to remember, I broke my neck for the first time in the company. I was actually the one who pushed Paul Lee to Chris Benoit. I actually wanted Paul Lee to bring him in. I pushed hard for Chris to be coming into ECW. I thought Chris would be perfect for it. Everything I saw he did in Japan, man, it was great. And I knew his hard-hitting style would be perfect for the bloodthirsty fans of Philly. So one night, we were talking to him overseas, and Benoit asked if I could help get him some work in the United States. So I made a call. I mean, I was trying to help the guy out, but even more selfishly, I wanted to wrestle Chris on TV in the States, and I knew it would mean big money for both of us. The first time I broke my neck, Benoit threw me, thinking I was going to take a flat back bump. But... On one end, it was misread. I thought I was supposed to be taking a back body drop and bumping instead at the very last second. I tried to turn around in midair so I could land in the right position that I was supposed to land in, but that wasn't happening. Not getting around all the way, I twisted my body funny and ended landing right on my fucking head. It was by no means something that was sloppy. It was just miscommunication. Chris threw me in. And with one move, I thought I was doing something. He thought I was doing something else. I tried to right myself, but I couldn't do it in time, and I landed on my head. God, what the fuck was that, I thought. There was a sharp pain, and I tried to turn my head slightly. I could hear a crunchiness as I moved, and I knew that wasn't good. My chest buckled inward as I hit the mat with all the weight on the top of my head. My spine impacted. My neck was legitimately broken. However... Along with my collective groan from the crowd, I heard my uncle like a drill sergeant in my head. The show must go on. I rolled out of the ring. Paul was acting as my manager and 911 my handler. They knew I was hurt. I wanted to do what a real professional would do. I was taught that whatever happens, you have to stay a professional and do whatever it takes to finish the match. Do what the promoter would want. I wanted to go into pro mode and keep on wrestling to the finish, but the two guys around me wouldn't let me. Some of you guys may have seen the match on WWF SummerSlam August 3rd, 1997, where Owen Hart reversed Steve Austin into a spitting, sitting pile driver. Austin's neck was too low in the position, and when Owen went to execute the move, he spiked Stone Cold's head into the mat, and the maneuver broke his neck. Austin could barely move, and it was legit temporary paralysis. 
the injury was a huge problem. But some will agree that to wrestlers in the ring, the storyline problems seemed to trump the injury. Austin had to figure out a way to pin Owen Hart, even though he couldn't move. What ended up happening was that Owen had to stall to allow a slow-moving Austin to crawl over and roll him up for the pin. This is probably the worst roll-up ever, but you have to give credit for the professionalism Austin did for finishing the match. Once again, as my uncle would say, the show must go on. I'm not sure I can describe this well enough to continue to someone who might not be a professional wrestler. When you're out in the ring, you have to give it your all. Not even a broken neck is supposed to stop you from doing that, or any night. After giving the fans the performance they wanted, and were supposed to get the response from my boss after the bell rang, I didn't get. I can finish, I said. I, I guess I was just needing to clear my throat for a moment. No, Paul said, you stay here. I slept in a neck brace. My career was continuing to skyrocket, and I couldn't believe I was actually having to take time off. Usually the way it works in wrestling is when you take time off, someone else comes along and takes your spot. I couldn't afford to let that happen, not at this point. About two weeks after my injury, I was up moving around, ready to get back in the ring. To stay in the spotlight, I asked Paul E. to be booked in more tag matches for a bit until I was ready to come back fully in more profiled single matches. So my next match after the injury was with my tag team partner, the Tasmaniac, against the Malenko brothers, Dean and Joe. In a tag match, I could protect myself a little more. I could go in, do some offense, and maybe tag Taz back in for some of the heat that I physically couldn't do, and then I would work. But I was later told by my physician that I was extremely lucky had I taken the wrong move in that tag match and landed on my head or neck area just the right way, I probably would have been paralyzed for the rest of my life. Well, broken neck or not, the ECW ball continued to roll, and so did I. I ended up winning the ECW TV and tag belts. Then, I even beat the legendary Terry Funk for the heavyweight title. That was the feather in my cap that I had always wanted. I had held all the titles that ECW had offered. Now, around this time, a few guys in the back were trying to break in a new guy by the name of Pablo Marquez. They had found him in the independent scene and thought, because of his inspiration from me, that he probably would be a good fit. I didn't really know what he was doing. I mean, I guess it was some sort of knockoff Sabu character, but he really didn't try to be me exactly. At least I didn't think that was the case. What I did know was that he wasn't very good all the time. Honestly, man, I don't even belong here, Pablo said to me in an interview. I mean, I guess I was green, 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 green. There were so many more qualified people out there somehow, and, and I got the spot. I realized how lucky I was just for having an opportunity. Everyone is new at some point and needs a break. Some say that Pablo may have never been stealing my gimmick, but I didn't look at it that way at all. He wasn't ripping me off. He said I was his idol. I took that to sign of respect. He had a good attitude, so I decided to help him out however I could. I ended up bringing him to my place during my time off and training him more. We became good friends. He later would say, Sabu taught me so much. I am so thankful for everything he did for me. I only have good memories of him. 
He was the very best, Pablo would say. When Pablo first came to my house to practice for a week, I think he thought he was just going to do moonsaults. He got in the ring and started doing all this acrobatic shit. I shifted gears and immediately turned into my uncle, a version, many years before. A moonsault is not wrestling, it's show business. After that, I started from square one. I sat and showed him headlocks and all the basic stuff. He listened and learned and became much better than what he originally was. Everyone in ECW saw his improvement. After that, a lot of guys related to ECW came to hang out at my place. I never charged any of them for anything. Finishing school was basically just getting back to the basics. We would take a guy who claimed to be trained and somehow show him why his training had failed. It was about giving back to the love of the sport. I had quite a class that was going on. I had some students who were friends on various wrestling promotions who they thought they had a potential. Then I had guys from Germany, Austria, and England. They were no-namers. I didn't charge them anything. The deal was, if they helped me with some independent shows, I would help them as well. You drive my car where I sleep, and I will train you. I remember for a time I was doing some spots with Pat Tanaka, so we would do a bunch of shows together. We had a very different driver. It seemed for every show, driving my big mobile home camper all over the place, and eventually the trip back to Philadelphia. I would then sometimes get booked on the undercard a lot of times. They would just be tackling dummies for Tanaka or myself and really wouldn't amount to anything much, but... It was at least some more ring time. I've been asked to talk about the NWA, but I want to first talk about the man behind it. This is the Blue Meanie. Sabu is without a doubt one of the most influential and innovative professional wrestlers ever in the world of professional wrestling. You can't, unfortunately, put a patent on moves or move sets. However, if you could, Sabu would be a gazillionaire. I love Sabu. I first came to appreciate him as a fan, but even more so when I got to know Sabu with working with him. That is when I really grew to love the man. The first time I came across him was as a fan. He was wrestling a few of Dennis Corluzzo's events. I remember sitting there in the audience and then seeing something crazy that he did, and he made my eyes bug out of my head. I was simply beside myself watching him perform. Seeing Sabu in the ring for the first time is hard to describe in mere words. It can only relate to the feeling to what you might react when you hear an exceptional groundbreaking piece of music for the first time. One example of this would be the first time I heard Eddie Van Halen's guitar on his solo, an eruption. Another example is the first time I heard Slash's opening riff for Sweet Child of Mine. Hearing Eddie Van Halen singing Slash and seeing Sabu were all similar. What the hell was that type of moment? When I moved to Lima, Ohio to train with Al Snow with the old Bodybuilders Pro Wrestling School, I finally got to meet Sabu. Sabu and Al were in the middle of a program at that time and one of the hottest views, honestly, in the business. Getting to see those matches was incredible, and at that time I really couldn't believe that all this was happening right around me. If only had been broadcast to a larger audience, this stuff would have been video game-like. During my time in training in Ohio, Al would book Sabu on all of his shows that took place right at our own school. That was the venue. We all watched in awe, and afterwards, I would even ask him questions about what I saw, what he did in the ring, how we should be in the locker room, 
is a real treat to be able to learn from somebody like that. Eventually stealing a page out of my uncle's playbook, he actually started showing me some stuff from the Sheik. He started running me around all these other shows in Michigan that were still at the time under the NWA banner. Behind the scenes, the boys used to call the NWA Sabu. For these shows, Sabu was cool and it hooked a bunch of us up. He enlisted most of Al's students at the time to wrestle on the undercards for all these shows, just trying to help us get experience. This is where I made my debut. I started out as Brian Rollins. Another one of Sabu's goals was also to bring in a lot of new talent that hadn't worked yet in the Detroit area. This was his way of getting people to see fresh new faces that they knew very little about. And wrestling new also means exciting. These shows were a blessing to me, and the fact that it was more of an opportunity to work and to learn and to be seen. The exposure was great because Sabu's shows were getting a lot of coverage due to his notoriety, and he let me be along for the ride. Also along the way, the NWA's Sabu shows were overlapping his tenure with ECW. Therefore, Sabu was able to tap their talent for not only his shows, but he started to bring them into ECW as well. Taz, Tommy Dreamer, even Paul Heyman from time to time. Working these particular shows was big. I was able to create a sense of familiarity with myself and the ECW crew. This is why I eventually was brought to ECW by Raven and Steve Richards to work with them. But then again, this isn't about me and my time in the NWA. This is about a guy named Sabu who helped me out and put me on the map. My story is just about as different as many other wrestlers who benefited from Sabu. He changed professional wrestling. Whether Sabu was pulling someone aside after a match and giving them a critique or actually taking someone under their wing and mentioning to them something, boy, he was always there helping guys. As you probably already read, one example of Sabu's generosity was evident in the case of Louis Piccoli. Louis was fired by a Japanese promoter because of a practical joke that Sabu pulled that end and ended up backfiring on Louis. However, what you do not know is that Sabu, Sabu felt so bad about what had happened, he actually paid Louis to wrestle in ECW. That's right. Sabu was so honorable that he booked Louis out of his own pay as a way to get him work that would get him out of a wrong situation. That's just the type of guy Sabu is. That's why I love Sabu. That's why I admire Sabu. That's why I say thank you for your contributions and physical sacrifices. Your uncle, the almighty Sheik, would be proud. The Blue Meanie. That's going to do it for Chapter 7, which is very long. Um, so I do appreciate you hanging with me on that one. So we heard uh, we heard from Tommy Dreamer. We heard from the Blue Meanie. Um, we heard about Sabu breaking his neck. We learned about how the beginnings of ECW were really just not good until, you know, Paul started to realize that we need to start bringing some more names in here to kind of supplement or offset the talent that just frankly wasn't there. We learned about the things that Sabu would do for other wrestlers, such as what he called the finishing school, which wrestlers who had been trained yet things weren't working out. He would take them and teach them what they hadn't been trained the right way and then kind of put some polish on them. We found out that he would take care of people that he worked with, even though he didn't have to. We learned a lot about him in Chapter 7, and I think it was fascinating. So 
Hopefully you enjoyed chapter seven as well. When we come back, chapter eight uh, is entitled self-medication. Uh, that seems to be a phrase that we hear a lot in the world of wrestling. Unfortunately, due to the nature of the industry, a lot of people have to self-medicate to get their bodies healed up and ready to go to perform the very next day. In a lot of ways, especially with the WWE, you work 300 plus days a year. And I, I mean, I don't ever condone getting hooked on any types of medication, but these guys just did what they had to do to feed their family. And that's just the reality of it. Whether you agree with it or not, they were doing the best they could. And I don't believe any wrestler ever starts out when it comes to self-medicating with the intentions of, well, I'm going to get hooked. No, not at all. I believe 99.99% of wrestlers out there are great people. And they have that responsibility. They want to take care of their wives and their children. And they want to make sure that they're able to continue to work. Because remember, they take a day off, someone's going to take that spot. And there's that fear that's built into the industry that if you're gone for a small period of time, you're going to be forgotten. So, Chapter 8, Self-Medication, we're going to find out a lot about this and how this factored into all of the future of Sabu's career. And I'm sure he'll share some stories about others as well. Guys, if you're enjoying this, please continue to hit me up on social media. I am on Twitter. I am at Mike Freeland. By all means, uh, remember each and every week we have Front Row Material live on Tuesday nights on our Twitch channel. Please tune in. We would love to have you in the chat room. Go ahead, jump in, say hello, ask a question. We always have great entertaining guests on there as well. Also, remember Future Stars Now is a great show that we have on Friday nights as well on Twitch. Uh, and just follow us. Just join in. If, you, if you're someone who is a casual wrestling fan, um, have fun with us. If you are a hardcore wrestling fan, you're going to enjoy it as well. But most importantly, if you just want to have fun, just come on over. Have a good time. Enjoy. Throw your wrestling comments out there, your questions. We do have a hotline. So the more participation, the more interaction, we appreciate. Until next time, I am Mike Freeland, and this has been Overbooked. Stops.